welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host today, Garrett Farrell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Emma Catlett here. How are you doing today, Emma? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Today we have a very special guest. We have a judge from the court, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, David Newell. How are you doing today, Judge? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm glad that this the video that I'm looking at is not going to be seen on the podcast because I look like Michael McDonald from the, from the Doobie Brothers. It's like, <laughs> somewhere back in a long ago. So it's really, it's not a good look for me. So, I'm, but otherwise I'm doing great. I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm feeling a little yacht rock going because I'm old, so. Well, that's great. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Uh, we appreciate your time. So uh, we kind of start these things off with your story and how you led up to being a judge on the Court of Criminal Appeals. Okay. Well, uh, just to give you the, I, you know, one of the things I've noted, even as I'm giving this this heads up, I have a tendency to make short stories really long. And so I will try to make it short. But uh, I mean, you're asking my, my whole life story. So I can say, well, I was born and uh, I first learned to walk, you know, I, but no, like I... Um, just to give you a little uh, understanding about, I grew up in, I was born in Bethesda Naval Hospital because my dad is a military uh, military man. He went to the Naval Academy. He and my mom are both from, grew up in Bel Air, Texas, out there in Houston. So they, they moved us back there. And that's where I pretty much grew up was not in Bel Air, but in uh, Fort Bend, just outside of Houston. So in the Houston area, I never was going to be a lawyer when I was growing up. I actually uh, was going to be a creative writer. I was going to be a writer. I started writing like, a huge novel when I was like in fifth grade, like World War Four, because I thought like at the time everyone was thinking about World War Three. I was like, that's been done. Let's just skip it and go right to World War Four, you know. And uh, I couldn't figure out what to do with Australia. That was the big problem. So I was, but anyway, so I've been writing just for fun since I was in in fifth grade, and I went to University of Houston to get a degree in creative writing, which is one of the top schools in the country for that. And um, I got a degree there, but by the end of my college career, and I was, you know. I had a friend of mine who was sexually assaulted and I wanted to be there to help her. This was back in the early nineties. You know, there's a lot more attention and a lot and people are a lot more aware of resources, and things like that. But I didn't know how to talk or talk to her or anything like that. And how I could be an ally, I think is what you would say now. And so I volunteered at the Houston area women's center and I, I did the, the rape crisis hotline for a year. And it, you know, when I did that, it was a really significant event in my life because it showed me, or it really sort of impressed upon me that being a writer was was a nice thing. It's good to have that skill, but I was never really going to make a contribution to society that way. And uh, that I would actually be able to do more if I went to law school. And so I went to law school to be a prosecutor, you know, to, with a specific goal of doing that. I went to the University of Texas School of Law. When I graduated, I was fortunate. I went there and I actually had, I met my wife there. She grew up in Quail Valley and I grew up in Sugarland. And we're just like 10 minutes away from each other, but we didn't meet until our third year of law school. And I met her and then eventually we're married. It's going on uh, 25 years now. But I came back to Fort Bend. Uh, I got a job in the Fort Bend DA's office there. I was a line prosecutor. I did, you know, I tried misdemeanor cases. I sat in on felony cases too. I mean, you know, I, I got to, to run a docket, things kind of like that. But one of the prosecutors in the office recognized my ability as a writer John Herity, who's a real big influence on my life, and he's the appellate chief there, and he got me to volunteer to do 
appeals. And that's really where my skill set was because I've done all this training and writing. I have some skill in that area. And so I just sort of fell into appellate prosecution. I was an appellate prosecutor there for about seven years, another seven, or maybe it was 10 and then seven. But then I went to the Harris County DA's office as an appellate prosecutor as well for another, another seven years. And then in 2013, around 2013, three judges, they, a lot of people don't understand this about the history of the Court of Criminal Appeals, but there was a really volatile period of court. And then there was a political shift in Texas. You know, a lot of Republicans, conservative Republicans came in and took over. And there was this really stable period for the court for 12, 16 years. And then three of the judges on that court decided to step down and, and leave open spots. And so I saw this and I thought, well, I had been training or I've been doing presentations for uh, TDCA, which is Texas District and County Attorneys Association, for the State Bar, for the University of Texas CLE Conference on Criminal Appeals, on the case law. I've been doing the case law update, which was explaining significant decisions from the United States Supreme Court and the Court of Criminal Appeals. And so I was very familiar with their work, and I was very concerned that there might be a shift on the court. There might be a change in the quality of the court the product of the court. And so I did what any sensible person was would do. I went to my boss and I said, you should run. And uh, he did not. He had actually done that before. And it was a very challenging thing because it's hard to run statewide because it's a statewide office. And so I looked around and I was just like, well, someone's someone should step up. And so I did. And um, we actually had a meeting in my house, a family meeting. And I, you know, we sat down, we talked about the pros and cons and uh, my son, I believe he was in third grade at the time, uh, my younger son, you know, I, I told everyone, I was like, I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going to happen if I lose. I'm really terrified of doing this because it's a big undertaking. And my younger son said, well, you know, I was scared to run for student council, but I did it. And so I was like, well, thanks. I'm just, I'm getting punked out by my, my younger son. So I threw my hat in the ring. It was a very, very you know, not, it was a very hard race, um, but I won first time I'd ever run for anything. Um, you know, my opponent, I will, you know, give props to my opponent in the primary. Uh, he was a very gracious person, a gracious opponent. It was not a very negative, uh, campaign. It was very much on who we thought was the best person to take over the job. And I, you know, I took the position that it was me and the voters agreed. And, uh, and that's how I got on the court. And I've been on the court since, um, 2015, and I just ran, recently ran for re-election in 2020 in one of the strangest uh, election environments that you're ever going to see in the middle of COVID with all the mail-in ballots and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I actually did a lot of Zoom meetings where I was debating my opponent in a general election, which really doesn't happen a lot. And I still managed to get the highest amount of votes for anyone in my court ever. So it was pretty good. So uh, that brings me to now. Um, and and my experience being on the court, and now I'm on the court, and I'm um, probably about in the middle of my second term. I know that was really long, wasn't it? I'm so sorry. No, don't be sorry. That was great. Um, could you tell us a bit about your work as an appellate prosecutor when you were doing that, and what sure. kind of the day-to-day work for that position is like? Yeah, the the being an appellate prosecutor, I mean, one of the things about it is, is that you know, it's interesting because not every place has an appellate prosecutor. A lot of times in your smaller counties, you'll have the guy who tried the case, ends up handling his own appeal. And But I was fortunate that we were a little more cosmopolitan. I mean, it was me and John Harity in Fort Bend. And I believe he got it. he's gotten a third person now since then. Uh, and then Harris County has a whole division. But it's very much like you you get the record, you, you know, you wait and see what happens. Sometimes 
in a smaller environment, Fort Bend was great about that because it was big and small at the same time. It had all the, it was like a, it was kind of a more metropolitan community, but it was still a very small town, you know, it's sort of a, a kind of unique mixture there. And so I would be there with the prosecutors a lot of time and I would get to see them try the case. And sometimes they would be like, hey, come in here. And they would say, well, what do you think about this particular issue? And I'd help advise them while they're trying their case. And then, of course, I would then see it as an appellate prosecutor come to me. And, um, you know, it took me a while to get into the thing of it because I was one of the things that John Harity taught me that I, I still stand by, which is, you know, you got as an appellate person, you've got to sort of account for everything. You really shouldn't be making an assertion of your own. You should be backing it up with whatever the law is. And that's one of the big challenging things, because sometimes you find propositions that you need to state that have no direct law on the on it and so you have to sort of work around it you sort of like what was it the facebook i don't see the movie the social network facebook in order to launch if they couldn't get into one college town they hit every college outside of that town you know and it's sort of the same kind of thing with being an appellate prosecutor being any appellate lawyer if you don't have anything directly on point you can sort of go around it and sort of make a circumstantial appellate case to make the case for a particular proposition but he really trained me to sort of you know nail those kinds of things down uh which is something i'm very grateful for uh it's an interesting sort of the thing i've taken with me as a judge uh is that you know it shouldn't be you 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 know you should be a custodian of the law and um and you're there to help the judges sort of make their decision within the law you're not really there to try and push the envelope to fix something. Judges shouldn't be there to say, well, there's this problem with the law and we, I can think of a way to make it work better. It's like, but you're not, you're not a legislator. You're supposed to be a judge. And so you're just supposed to be looking at what the law is and try and apply it as best you can. Even if that kind of leads to a decision that you're like, oh man, I wouldn't have done that. You know, I, I, I don't like that, but um, you know, the, you got to follow the law. And so the first time I started doing appeals, it was funny. Like I would get, I think I wrote like a 60 page brief on, um, you know, whether a, a knife that hadn't been found was a deadly weapon, which now would take me like 15 pages because it's just so like anything can be a deadly weapon under Texas law, a frog, uh, air. I think fire was one. I think we actually have a case that says fire is a deadly weapon. Um, but I mean, it's just anything that is in its use or intended use is capable of causing serious bodily injury or death. That's a deadly weapon. Uh, I don't know how it is that, you know, Alec Baldwin can commit manslaughter by shooting a gun that's not a deadly weapon that still causes someone's death. But that's what they're doing in Arizona. So maybe the law is different there. But I mean, at the beginning, I was writing these huge treatises and now I got a lot more. And as I continued my career, I got a lot more concise with them. Uh, and that's sort of the that's sort of the thing, you know, the the difficult another difficulty I found, too, was that is. You, you know, I noted this, like there's a, there's a loss of the humanity of the event, you know, like it's so the people that try, like say for child crime cases, you can have people that are trying the case that are really close emotionally and the person in the trial court, they'll have a better sense of what's going on. By the time you get to an appeal, it's all very, very cut and dry and you can lose some of that feeling. And that's why you're supposed to be deferential to the trial, to the trial level because they're the ones that are in the best position to sort of judge those things. And it can be kind of frustrating sometimes to be like that, but it's like, but that's the ruling there and that they're in the best position to sort of judge how to apply the law in those circumstances, because I can't look at the witnesses when they're testifying or things like that. So uh, I guess that's sort of the big thing uh, that I would say about 
me being an appellate prosecutor, what it was like doing that. So there, take that. <laughs> and how do you think your sort of appellate work has um, changed or um, I guess altered your judicial philosophy compared to others that may not have been doing appellate work as long or started as a... Oh, that's a really good question. I really, I mean, that's really neat because one of the things I think is great about our court is also is is that we are you know like we are diverse i mean we are a court of or if there there are four female judges there's one african-american judge there's you know one of the judges you may not realize this is actually native american um you know even though you would not tell look at him but he can trace his heritage that but but more than that there's also occupational diversity we have several several judges on our court that are appellate judges you know, or there are appellate, there are appellate prosecutors that were appellate prosecutors went right to being a judge. And, um, you know, I don't think we, I, we used to have one that had been an appellate judge at the intermediate level, but now we also have a bunch of judges. We definitely have several judges that were on the trial court bench as well. And there's really a different perspective that the trial court judges bring to it than the, um, than the appellate guys do. And, and I mean, it comes back to a little to that sort of, you know, some some extent, it, it's sort of there's a lot of discussion about confirmation bias, implicit bias, and a lot of that gets morphed into things like, well, you are biased because of your, you know, your upbringing or something. But there's a different when I think of things like implicit bias or confirmation bias, or when the, the the you know bias is such an ugly word. But when I think of it, it's more along the lines of things that I don't know or that I'm not likely to see because my experience wasn't there. If I'm a trial judge, I'm more able to see when I read an appeal, I can tell how things played out in the trial court when I'm looking at an appeal. But when I'm an appellate guy, I'm really very fascinated or I'm very focused on, you know, what precedent is, what precedent I rely on. You know, I will like inherently in my work as an appellate prosecutor, I can, I will grade the level of cases that I would rely on just because I know that they're more they're more binding or persuasive. For example, I'm going to cite to a Supreme Court of the United States case first. You know, uh, court of criminal appeals case second. You know, I'll fight cite to the text of a statute first if it's a statutory construction issue, a constitutional provision if it's a constitutional issue. But but if you're a trial judge, you you tend to go like, well, here's this thing that happened, and it's exactly like what happened to me, or, or that's exactly what happened. Like here's like here's this case, and I'm looking at a case where say evidence shouldn't have come in on appeal. And I can say, but I remember this other case that I read that is very similar to that. And that's going to be the case that I rely on, even if it's a case that's at another intermediate court level. It's not a Supreme Court case. It's very much an ex it's a little bit more experiential and it can be good because it'll because you can figure out, well, if you rule a certain way appellate as, as an appellate holding, it's going to do X, Y or Z to the way trial judges handle their dockets. You know, because they will instantly be able to pick those things up. And that's a really that's a good thing for them to have that skill. But at the same time, it's also good to know, well, this is an appellate issue. There's a legal issue here. You are now messing with the standard of review in this one issue that's going to affect the standard of review in other issues that could down the road result in result in uh, outcomes that you're not not intending or anticipating. So, I, you know, that's a long, heady way of looking at saying, you know, of, of getting to that topic. But as an appellate person, like I said, I've already said that, you know, I feel that I need to hammer home. Here's what my precedent is. I think that's one of the big things that I, I think that being an appellate person is, has uh, taught me. 
I tend to focus a little bit more on the way things are framed because the way you frame issues can also often dictate how they're decided when you frame it on appeal versus, you know, and the way the court decides it. And, uh, and so I think that's the thing that being an appellate prosecutor, those are, those are the small down and dirty things I would say that are more concrete as to what it is that being an appellate prosecutor has brought, has taught me about or influenced my judicial uh, decision-making. See, I told you, short story long, I'm like really good <laughs> at just like, don't, like the sad part is, is that you're not even catching me in my car. Like I could be in my car and I'll have this whole conversation just by myself. The good news is I don't answer myself. So that's, that. <laughs> that's good. So I was wondering, Judge, what's kind of the environment like um, being part of, I guess, kind of a panel of judges? <laughs> um, is it kind of, does it feel adversarial sometimes or does it feel almost like it's teamwork? Like y'all are trying to that get is, to the I, end. I love, oh, I love that you asked that question. One of the jokes that I say, and, and I, I'm a, I kind of am known for having a sense of humor when I do presentations and everything. And I try not to have a sense of humor or very, very small sense of humor in what I write. But I say my sense of humor, my understanding of humor is that there's always a little truth in every joke. And I always like to say this, one of my big jokes about that very point, long way around to get to it is, you know, it's a little like Survivor being on this panel. It's like Survivor, except I can't vote any of my colleagues off and they can't vote me. The people, the audience vote you off, you know? But um, another a judge, it's sort of like, it's very similar because like you'll get cases and you'll, you know, one of the phenomena is that if you're not familiar with Survivor, there's a, they'll get an immunity idol that keeps them from being voted off the island. And they want to hide that from their colleagues, from, from their competitors, so that no one knows that they're going to, and so they try to get them to burn a vote against them. And they go, ha ha, I got immunity idol, you can't vote me off. And to some extent, there's a little bit of that kind of stuff that you see at the court and I think that's probably true at the at the United States Supreme Court as well. But it's sort of this idea of like trying to figure out where other judges are going uh, when they see something, like how they're going to rule. And so you sort of our process is that um, cases are assigned generally are assigned randomly. Okay, and I it, you know I have to put that in quotes because say I have written a memo at the stage where we're doing a petition for discretionary review saying. You know, our central staff has looked at the PDR, the Petition for Discretion Review, and said, we're not going to take it. We shouldn't take it, but I think we should take it. And I write a memo to the rest of my colleagues saying we should take this. And I convince four or three or more of my colleagues, because it only takes four to get discretionary review granted, um, then the case will automatically be assigned to me because I've done the work. But say that doesn't happen. Say we just grant it. And it get, then it will just be assigned based on who has the number of cases. If I have 10 cases I'm working on in my chambers, I'll get skipped. But if I don't have too many cases to work on, it'll go in the order of seniority um, and it'll get assigned to me. And then I will, once I get an opinion assigned to me, I will do up a draft based upon all the briefing. And if there's an argument, I'll do that and I'll bring it in. And you sort of go, well, what does everyone think? And there's a process we have called the pickup process. So someone can just say, I'm picking that up for three weeks. And so they'll say, I'm picking it up for three weeks. And they may or may not disagree with you. They may hold their parts that are close to the best on that. But they'll wait for three weeks. They'll look at it to see whether they disagree with you or see if they can take a position different than you. Or maybe they can support you with a concurring opinion. And then they come back to conference again after three weeks. And then another person can pick it up for two weeks. And then I come back in two weeks and maybe I've lost the vote or, or maybe I've lost that person's vote. And I, I 
originally had five people or originally had seven people and now I've got six. Another person wants to pick it up, they get one week and then it's it comes back in a week. And if I still have five votes, it goes out the door. But if I don't, then it goes, it gets switched to the to the person maybe who wrote a, a dissenting opinion, and that becomes the majority opinion. And that's what I'm getting at when I'm saying like sort of flushing the immunity idol. You're sort of like going, well, who's going to be coming at me? And you know, who's going to be disagreeing with me on this? And some respects, I don't think that it's it's not collaborative. I it's not as collaborative I would have as I would have hoped. There are times where we're all in agreement, and it can be very collaborative. But there are plenty of times where it is fairly contentious, and you and and that's just going to happen. And I think and I, to come back to the the United States Supreme Court, I think you can read between the lines on a lot of recent decisions from the United States Supreme Court, and you can see that. You know, you can see the angling. I mean, the, you know, the whole leaking thing, like, you know, like, did someone who leaked that was it an intentional thing to try? And there was all that discussion about was it an intentional leak by someone in someone's chambers to try and put public pressure on someone? Um, you know, I'm not saying that they did or they didn't. I'm just saying that you the the response to that event was in the news was very much like, well, what's the psychology going on behind the scenes? Are they sort of wrestling with a particular opinion to try and write something? But you don't even have to look at that. You could look at the Obamacare decision, Sevilus or whatever. You can tell just by reading uh, Kennedy's opinion, it looks like he had the majority. And of course, the later reports have shown that, yes, at the last minute, Roberts flipped. And, um, and so that's why Kennedy didn't get the majority. But his opinion reads like a majority. And so it can be it can be contentious at times like that. Um, but then there are plenty of times we do uh, we do have unanimous decisions where everyone's sort of sort of in agreement and they're like, yeah, this is this is right. This is good. Um, well, and we'll let it go. And it doesn't go through the pickup process. So it can be a little I guess the, the nice way of saying is it can be a little bit of both. Uh, I'm a little bit. It always breaks my heart a little bit when it's not collaborative, because I think that there's, you know, like. There are people, I, I like to think of myself as like, I'm not a vote on the court. I'm a fifth of a vote, meaning I've got to get four other people to agree with me. So I'm not important. The institution is important. The court itself is important. And so I'm one fifth of that ultimate majority. And so I try my best to try and bring people together and create consensus with my colleagues uh, unless they unless they show that they're not willing to do it and then they're not willing to not willing to compromise. And then I'm like, well, okay, then I, I've done my best, you know, but it's, it's a little bit of both. And I wish it was more collaborative sometimes than it is, but it can be, it can be kind of adversarial sometimes. Yeah, that's great. I think that survivor analogy is um, incredible. Kind of the way to think about it. It's never something that I really thought about how the court works like that. So it's funny you say it. Cause like I, I once I got to the because it was sort of when I was an appellate guy, you know, like as an appellate prosecutor. And then another analogy I think is there's there's a movie called Remains of the Day. It's a Merchant Ivory deal, and Anthony Hopkins plays a butler in it. And there's a shot. There's this one shot in the whole movie. I'm telling you this whole movie just to tell you about one shot, which is I've seen so many movies now. I remember these shots. But there's a scene where Anthony Hopkins, who's a butler, is there in front of his lord, and he's holding up a he's sort of holding up a case of or holding up a cup of tea for his lord because they're about to go out on a hunt and it's a sustained shot of him for a few for maybe a minute and he doesn't even move and i'm like that was my attitude as an appellate prosecutor I'm like here you go i'm bringing you the law what you do with it is up to you you know that kind of a thing you know and i i sort of really took that and i thought 
And so I so I came to the court and I was like, well, if I say if I cite the cases and show you these things, you will you will agree, you know, and you you have to because I've shown you what the law is. These are cases this is what a precedent is. And um, I was just amazed at how group dynamics can take over. And it really does sort of become like reality TV, except the people are not attractive, you know, and no one is watching. But I mean, it's just a lot of the same sort of you got to I've been very fascinated the way the group dynamics change momentum and stuff like even to the extent of like if you do something that's an emergency discussion via email, depending on who votes first, that could get the ball rolling in one direction that may not be what you you think is the right thing to do. And so is it better to wait to vote or not vote? And um, it's just it's I don't know. It can drive me crazy. I mean, where there's a, a friend of mine uh was on was his name is Jeff Brown he's now federal judge in uh in Galveston and he was a trial judge an intermediate judge and a and a judge on the Supreme Court of Texas and he said when I was a trial judge I had to convince myself and that was it you know when I was an intermediate judge I just had to convince one other person that I was right and that was it and once I got to the Supreme Court I I could convince three other people that I was right and I would still lose you know it really is there really is an emphasis which is a good thing on you have to compromise at some point because you're getting so many personalities together, you know, and if there's a case, I know I'm going off topic on that. I'm so sorry. But um, but if there's a case for why you shouldn't legislate from the bench or why judges shouldn't be activists is not so much sort of the true belief kind of judicial philosophy. I'm conservative and this shouldn't do it just sort of top down. It's more of a I look at it more of a ground up kind of thing. We're not built like a legislator legislature. I don't have the resources to call people in and have a hearing. The court doesn't have either to call people in to debate how this particular statute is going to affect someone in, say, Lubbock versus Houston. You know, courts are having to sort of guess at those kinds of things. And that's something that we do our very level best at. But that's the reason why you should caution for restraint. That's what cautions for restraint is because you don't know what you don't know. And it's probably better to try and write a smaller opinion that's going to affect as little as possible than to write something big because you just can't tell because there's so many unknowns out there because Texas is a big place. And one ruling may work for Harris County, but it may not work for like, you know, Pampa or um, Harlingen, you know. So anyway. So, yeah. So that's, again, short story long. So uh, I guess switching gears just a little bit, could you tell us about the Court of Criminal Appeals visit that'll be in a few weeks and oh, sure. you know, for students, just kind of what to expect from that? Okay. So the, the nice thing is, is that this isn't, the, that you're going to see a little bit of pomp and circumstance, but basically where it's going to be in your courtroom, but you're going to get to see us all in our rows, but it's just going to be two cases that are going to be a little bit longer. The panels are probably going to be hot. You're going to get to see similar. You're going to get to see what a real or argument looks like. And the thing that I would sort of, you know, you know, you have nine of us. Well, I think nine of us will be there. There might be one judge who may not be able to attend. Um, but in any event, you know, what happens is, is that one person gets up and they get peppered by questions. And it depends on the, the issue where there's interesting issues. And what you'll see is. Judges asking questions, not necessarily specifically about the case, but about the parameters regarding the legal whole or the, the legal rule or principle that is being applied. You know, like, um, you know, how does this fit in this? How does this one case? What jigsaw? Where does this fit in the jigsaw puzzle of the jurisprudence of the state? What what does this one piece do? 
you you will probably not see dramatic stuff like you're used to on uh you know a podcast i mean not you know but like a true crime podcast or i mean the murdoch trial so everyone's paying attention my wife is you know all this kind of stuff it's not going to be like that where someone's going to get up and do exhibits or things like that it's a little bit more cerebral it's a lot more like maybe a debate just a regular debate um but the interesting thing is you'll have judges generally cordially jumping in to ask certain questions what about this building off questions from the advocates or not um, the two cases are one is a death penalty case and because they're set for submission, um, I don't want to inadvertently suggest that I have prejudged either of these things. I've, I've looked at them. I'm familiar with them, but I don't want to say too much about sort of the substance of the issues. Instead, I would sort of recommend that if you're interested and you would like to know, you can go to our website at txcourts.gov and it'll say there'll be a drop down menu for courts. You can go to the Court of Criminal Appeals drop down menu. There's a little tab for case submission schedule, March 23rd. You can click on that and see the submission schedule, and it'll lead you to the two different cases that are being argued. And you can read the briefs. You can read. I mean, you can you can see what's happened in the case. You'll get an idea of what the the facts are. The first case is a death. Like I think I've said already, is a death penalty case, and it's a pretty it was a pretty high profile case um, involving a Jordanian Jordanian immigrant who. Um, killed his daughter's uh, husband. And it was dubbed in the press as an honor killing. And it's a very involved factual case with a huge record. And you can see in the in the in the thing that they've had to exceed the word limit on the brief. So, you know, it's a lot to read. But then another one is a much smaller case dealing with a an unlawful carrying a weapon on the premises of an of a licensed premise to sell alcohol called the Crying Chain, which is a, a bar in McLennan County. And um, it's a little bit more discreet. Maybe the issues are a little bit nerdier, not as flashy as, say, the the, um, the death penalty case is, which is, you know, a lot more dramatic. But um, but it should be interesting. Sort of the intellectual puzzle in the second one should also be pretty good too um, for 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 viewers. So um, you know, the thing I would oh, and I, I did put some thought into this because I wanted to say this. A lot of people, when you watch oral argument, tend to sort of go, well, what would I do? Like, I think we're inherently, like, well, our default is to think we're the center of the universe. Like, David Foster Wallace said that, and like, in his, in uh, This Is Water Speech or whatever. We think of ourselves, everything is happening to us. We're the most vivid thing ever. It's to the left or right of me, right? And so we tend to think of ourselves when we watch oral argument as think of, well, what would I think? What would I do? But I would ask you to sort of consider well, how is it that the judge is supposed to answer these questions based upon the law that's being discussed? And what is the next, what are the consequences from that law? Not necessarily how this case should be decided, but how is the judge supposed to make those decisions regarding how this is going to affect, say, another hypothetical case? And you'll hear hypothetical questions and things like that because the judge will be very interested in doing that. And so I would urge you to try and consider what the judge's perspective is on how they're going to decide. Should they defer to a statute? Is Are they required to defer to precedent? Uh, you know, is this the kind of thing where they're going to feel hamstrung by existing law? Or is this a novel issue that they need to go outside and create some new? Um, those are the kinds of things that, that I would sort of urge you to, to consider is don't just think about how you might rule, but think about you know, how the process works and how, you know, how how the thought process is. Because to come back to being an appellate prosecutor, I was blessed with sort of as an advocacy, it was everything was black and white. 
You know, I like I knew that this is the way things to go. But once I became a judge, everything was like a technicolor. And there are just layers and layers that go into a decision that uh, I don't think people think about. And so I would urge you to try to do that and, and when you when you watch Roar. I like well, to end on that. That's that's great. Um, and I'll make sure to uh, link the website as well in the, the description of this so that people can find it and um, all that. But um, so beyond that, what sort of advice do you have for students that are going to be coming to the oral arguments? Um, what should they be listening for? What should they try to take away from um, these oral arguments? You know what? That's another good thing. Since I told about, so I've already said, like, you should consider what judges, how judges regard it. But also think about what the advocates, like, think about, you know, there's two different, this is this is going to be a strange analogy, but go with me. I used to watch Top Chef a lot. And there was, and I stopped at the end of the, at the season where they had the, these two brothers, the Voltaggio brothers. And they both had two different ways of looking at cuisine. The one Voltaggio brother was like, I'm here to give you a pleasant experience. You know, I'm here to give you the best dining experience. So you could go like in the movie, The Menu and say, I want a cheeseburger, you know, and they should make a cheeseburger for you. That's the kind of thing that a chef is supposed to do. That's one brother take. The other brother who I think is the evil Voltaggio. Okay. I think of him as the, he's a terrible, well, he's not terrible. He's very successful, but he's like, you know what you're getting when you come into my restaurant, you're getting this. And if you don't like it, don't come into my restaurant. And broadly speaking, that's kind of the way, that's, that's kind of two different approaches to advocacy as well. There's some people that come in and go, you know what, I think this is the way the law should be, right? I think that this is, and they can make a very compelling and persuasive argument. This is what we should do. This is how the law should be done going forward. And then there's others that are just like, I'm giving you as many options as I can, but I'm leaving it up to you as a judge to make the decision. My take on it personally, and I'm, I may be in the minority on this, my personal take on it is that the, the, I don't agree with, obviously I get buried the lead. I don't agree with the evil Voltaggio way of doing things. I think that, you know, it can be very persuasive and I can see it being very persuasive if you're all in, but if you lose one member of the panel, that other member, that member of the panel might persuade others to not go with you. And then you have no other resources to rely on in making the decision because that person has gone all in on one idea. They're all in on, on phone. They're all in on, you know, I'm going to do a deconstruction of a Caesar salad. And it's like, I don't want to put my food together, buddy. I want a salad. Okay. And so like, you don't want, so some people don't like that. I have my, my personal take, and this is the way I was as an appellate person. And if I'm giving advice to young lawyers, you want to be a little bit more like, I want to make sure that it's the judges that are the ones that are making the decision. I'm there to assist them. I'm there to be their helper. I'm not trying to drive the discussion. I'm there to try and give them options. And like I said, if you're really, really good, when I always tell advocates too, the really, really good advocates are the ones that know their facts and know the law so well that they can answer those questions because they know when that hypothetical is going to take them off into a, a, a rabbit hole that gets them outside of what they think the law should be. And that helps them know when to concede things. Like under that circumstance, I wouldn't agree that the state should win. But that's not what we have here. We have in this case, the state should win. Or this is what the defense is arguing. And this is this is a, a logical extension of Supreme Court precedent. And that's why we should do this. But we're not asking for something that's so great that it's going to come fundamentally change the way we look at problems. If you're the, you know, this is just this was unjust for this defendant. Okay. And so that's the kind of thing I would say that uh, that students should look for is look at the advocates and the way that they argue and see what their style is and see, 
you know, it's, it's, it can be really challenging because you want to be confident. You want to come in there and do that. But, you know, maybe the, the person that gives you a lot of tools and give the judges a lot of tools without sort of, you know, going, I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite advocates was a guy named Dan McCrory. I worked with him in Harris County and I swear I got to watch him do his last, I think his last argument in front of the court of criminal appeals. And he got up and he says, I don't really care what y'all do. Just answer. I just, I'm here to answer your question. So whatever it is you tell, I'll answer your question. And I mean, and it worked. I mean, it was, he was exactly right. He was just like, Hey, I don't, I haven't got a dog in this hunt. If you want to do that, this is what you're going to get. If you want to do this, this is what you're going to get. And, it, and he ended up prevailing. And, um, and so it's like, I, you know, that's, that tends to be the way I look at it. Um, but I mean, there's other, there's some value to look at it other ways. So I would look, to that i would look at that as, as uh from an advocacy standpoint if i were a student i would look to those things this is just more of a slightly practical question i was just wondering um after the oral arguments about how long will it be before um your official opinion is released okay the the depending on depending on the issue it can go for a long time we've had cases that have gone into appellate orbit for orbit for a long time and before i was a judge, I didn't understand why it would take that long. But the truth is, there are plenty of times I've, I've literally seen where it's like, this one case can't go out until this other case goes out. And then we need that other case to go out. So it takes a long time for that case to go out. My rule of thumb is always, you're looking at about six months. Okay, ideally six months to possibly a year. Uh, it can go longer than that. But if it's a discrete issue and it's assigned to, you know, if, if it's a fairly discrete issue assigned to a, a a judge that you know is is knows that they have the wind at their back because then we'll what we'll do after argument is we usually take a pre-submission or post-submission preliminary vote and so we get an idea where everyone's headed before you write it and and if everyone's in agreement then it makes it a lot easier i mean even sometimes we've done this on oral arguments like we granted oral argument on this and then we come in and post submission, like, why do we even grant discretionary review in this case? And then in, in a few weeks, the case comes down as dismissed as improbably granted. So you can get a quick opinion like that, but you can, but generally I would say six, uh, six, six weeks, six months, six months, did I say six months, six months. I meant six months, but I said six weeks, six months. That's probably what I would say. Six months to a year. So there you go. We're, I mean, that actually it comes back to another thing I would say that's interesting about this court. And this gets into a like a heady discussion about law, which I know you don't want, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Like, so there's a philosophy that's really prevailing amongst conservative judges that you know new conservative judges are following sort of the lead that Justice Clarence Thomas is that we're supposed to ex exercise mere judgment. We're not supposed to be sort of decide. We're just supposed to be, you know, we shouldn't be injecting our own things in there. We shouldn't rely on precedent. We shouldn't be adhering to precedent, those kinds of things. If it's wrong, it's wrong. We should correct it as soon as possible. And that's understandable, but there's so much, and any law student can can knows this. You just ruefully recognize this in your first year. There's so many totality of the circumstances cases. There's so many reasonableness cases. And it all depends, and those kinds of things allow judges, well-intentioned, or not well intentioned to just put their thumb on scales to sort of reach a particular result. So saying mere judgment is laudable as long as you've got a judge that's willing to act with restraint. But it's just really, but I mean, my take on it is almost like, well, you're just so you're just arguing a different rubric for the same basic process, which is 
judges are going to judge, you know, sometimes they are not going to be aware of the fact that they're pushing the envelope when they, when they shouldn't be pushing the envelope or vice versa. Maybe they should have gone further than they should have. Uh, maybe they should have deferred when they shouldn't, when they did it, those kinds of things. So there you go. So going forward to kind of just uh, law students in general, what advice do you have for law students um, that may be interested in being an appellate prosecutor or um, just interested in criminal law in general? Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay. I will tell you this. Like, I'm very proud of the fact I went to UT and I achieved all of my success with no help from career services at UT law. Okay. Like none. They really, they, I, you know, I shouldn't trash them, but I am a little bit bitter because when I won my election, they literally put in their newsletter, I'm an, I'm an alum. And they put in their newsletter nothing about me winning a statewide race. Instead, they put in the mayor of Austin, like somebody who'd won for a municipal race or something like that. And so the no one, so I'm a little bit, you know, I'm vain. I am, I have some thin skin sometimes. I don't talk to that, but, but in any event, I, I do take it as a sense of pride though, because when you go to some schools are very adept at sort of, we're going big law, you're going to the big law thing. I wanted to be a criminal prosecutor. And the truth is criminal prosecution or criminal defense is a different animal in the way that you leave school. Um, prosecute you typically i mean if you want to be a defense attorney some people want to be defense attorneys right out of the gate and the great thing about defense attorneys is, is that you can find defense attorneys who have hung out their shingle or and they're willing to help you and you'll they'll help you figure out bare bones stuff that they never talk about in law in law school like hey where do i get office space do i need you know what do i what, how do i get on the wheel to get appointments or something like that and you'll rely on defense attorneys a lot. The local defense bar will usually kind of help you out in that regard, even though it's also a it's also a competitive environment. And other people take the position that I want to be a defense attorney, but I'm going to start as a prosecutor. And so they will then try to get on at the DA's at a particular DA's office. I went and like mailed out to a bunch of different DA's offices. I was lucky to get to go to my first choice, which was Fort Bend, because it's my home. But um, a lot of times they're not going to hire you until you pass the bar. So what I did was I went and I interned at the local DA's office for free. Um, I did do some volunteer briefs. That's how they knew that I knew how to write um, there. And I worked really, really hard and impressed Don Healy, the DA at the time. And he was I was very lucky that he saw something of me and he gave me a job. Um, that's sort of the approach that I took. That's, you know, is that you want to try and get that that gig and you got to wait until you know, to be a prosecutor, you got to wait until you pass the bar and then blanket every every prosecution's office. You probably you may have a bigger, better chance in some of your bigger towns. The good thing is, is that some public defenders' offices are are up now, are very aggressive in looking at people, and that's another way that you can go if you want to be um, a criminal defense lawyer. I mean, I I think that the Harris County public defenders' office does a really good job, uh, and and they hire people. They 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 hire very good people, so. You typically you're looking at that's the on ramp. You also have to consider the election environment because right after an election cycle, the DA usually lets some people, especially in big counties, will let some people go and start to fill new positions, especially if there's a changeover in uh, in authority or a changeover at the top. Um, so you you've got to be cognizant of that. But you generally you'll see, and that's another reason why you know I'm very happy for my clerk who was on your podcast. Um, she managed to get a job with us with the uh, special prosecution unit, uh, which is a statewide prosecution unit. But I told her, like, if you've got a job, if you've got a real, jo- if you got a line on a job, if you want to go into prosecution, you need to take it because 
it's feast or famine. It'll be like a, there'll be a dry spell and then suddenly there'll be an opening and you'll see it like right in November. And then you'll also see another, uh, you'll see something like in May, you know, like around May is when the big, the big offices will do it. And so um, that's, that's kind of the best thing I could say, like, you know, that the, while you're waiting for your bar results, you definitely want to get there, get in and intern, uh, you know, get your feet wet if you can help other people out if you know any criminal defense attorneys you'd want to do that or you can intern at a public defender's office if you're going into criminal law um you know that that's 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 the best thing i could say that's what that's what i did and it worked for me well thank you um and as we kind well, of wrap- I, will, I do want to give a plug i will say before you go i want to i do want to give a plug i will say i'm lucky enough to have had so this is for the Baylor kids too, or the Baylor students as well. You guys really do crank out some really prepared lawyers. Like people come out of Baylor law really well prepared to go be lawyers. And I think it's because you have that that last the last year you have that special program that gets you done in like what in March or April or something like that. And I've had three clerks from from Baylor that have just been wonderful, and uh, they're very very good attorneys. Are very very sharp. So Baylor's a good school. Don't feel discouraged. You know, you if you get out of Baylor, you will have some real skills to go out there and practice when you're when you're out of law school. Well, that's good to know. It's it's good to hear. <laughs> so we're we're going through the, the the program right now. But um as we sort of wrap up here, do you have any sort of parting wisdom or anything that um you maybe wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? Um kind of open the floor. Uh, you know, the thing that I, you know, like the thing I always say that that um I guess if I had any parting wisdom, it would be, I don't know if y'all are familiar with, I tell this to prosecutors all the time. This is something I learned uh, from my mentor, John Harity, and it's something that I've carried with me. And I've also, I've alluded to a, a speech by David Foster Wallace called This Is Water. And um, I urge you to look at that up on YouTube and listen to it. It's like a 20 minute speech, but it's really a very, very good little speech about how to look at life and about how our default setting in the world is to think of ourselves as the most important thing ever. And the the sign of a really good critical thinker is someone that can consider the possibility of other things from other perspectives. And, um, you know, like the, the, the biggest thing that sort of that leads me to is this one thing I say, tell prosecutors, I would always tell prosecutors when I taught them is I was fascinated by this experiment that the, the Milgram experiment, and many people don't know it by name, but you know it from what it is. It's the one where the guy decided to bring in folks and had them administer what they thought was an electric shock when someone got a question wrong, right? And it turns out that person that was getting shocked wasn't really getting shocked. They were an actor. And invariably, everyone, you know, everyone gets to a point where they go, well, I'm not going to do this. I shouldn't do this, you know? And someone would come out with a lab coat and a clipboard and they would say, hey, uh, don't worry about it. We take full responsibility. And the statistics on the test were so damning, like morally damning. Like there were people that were shocking the person when they were dead, you know, like so many people. But one person walked out, you know, like the statistically there, that's how rare it was, which is also terribly damning. But I always say that you should consider that like, you know, like people have met that guy like, well, this is definitely you meet the guy and, you know, this is a guy that would walk out of Milgram. And you want to try and live your life as a lawyer, be the kind of person that would walk out of Milgram so they can put that on your gravestone. I walked out of Milgram. Don't just do something because it's the way that everyone's done it. You know, don't just do it like because you have if you're a prosecutor, just because you have the authority, know why you're doing it. You know, be have the courage to stand up and say, you know what, just 
I'm not going to do this just because someone, because I have the authority, because someone with authority over me is telling me to do it. You should be very careful to understand why you're doing it. Maybe it's been done that way for a good reason. And if you find that reason, do it that way. But always be willing to take that stand and be able to walk out of Milgram because that's one of the things about being a lawyer that's so challenging is at the end of the day, you are having to look at your own ethics on every and every moment. Everything you do is going to make you question the kind of person you are. And you want to be the kind of person that walks out of Milgram. Well, thank you very much, uh, Judge. Um, I appreciate having you on the podcast. This is a great episode. Um, and I think the viewers and the listeners will uh, have a good idea of what's going to come uh, when you guys are here at Baylor. So um, that'll be great. And uh, Looking forward thank you to all of our listeners as well. Um, and this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Um, we'll catch you next time.